If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fifth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please click that subscribe button. Follow us for authentic and encouraging Christian content. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Or check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. You'll find blogs, sermons, study guides, podcast links, and lots of free stuff. We hope that you enjoy today's broadcast. Today we're going to focus on... The temptations of Jesus. Now, Matthew has it in chapter 4. Luke also has it in chapter 4. And I mentioned already that there's a couple times that the Gospels do that. So it kind of helps us in the early parts when you're looking for uh, a story. It's very similar there in those early chapters. So chapter 4 of Luke or chapter 4 of Matthew. And you can mark both of those though we're going to kind of camp out in Luke's uh, example of it. And then I'm also going to spend some time tonight sharing with you why I think these three specific temptations were unique to Jesus. Not that we wouldn't be tempted by the same things, because that's the reason he goes through the temptation, is that he might be like us and sympathize with our weaknesses. But each of these things were meant specifically to try to entangle Jesus. And so we'll see that tonight. And this is a great contrast, too, between the two Adams, where we have Jesus as the second Adam, if you will, and then the fall of Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And we read more about that in Genesis 3, and we're going to do that tonight. We're going to look and compare those texts, Genesis 3 and Luke chapter 4, and then I'm also going to highlight another passage of Scripture. So here's what I'd like for you to do. You probably don't have ribbons like I do. I have little, little preacher's ribbons, all these different colors. So what I'd like for you to do is mark with your hand. We're going to read Luke at chapter 4. I want you to mark it, and then we're going to go and we're going to look at 1 John 2. So let's start here, Luke chapter 4, and we want to read uh, verses 1 through 13. And then we're going to jump over and look at another text. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being tempted for forty days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and to keep you. 
and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So basically we have these three separate temptations. One is the the bread to stone, right? The second is showing him all the kingdoms of the world. And then the third is to be thrown down from the temple. We'll, We'll come back to these each individually. Now, why these three and none other? Why these specific? And I'm not saying that there wasn't any temptations besides these three. And I also want to make it clear it's possible because it says that he did the second one in a moment of time that it took quite a bit of time and distance for him to be able to cover the ground on these. So it may have been more than just a one-minute temptation. It may have been an all-day intriguing thoughts and questions and back and forth, but Luke's done a great job of showing us in a succinct way, here's the temptation, and Jesus defeats it with Scripture, and I don't want you to miss that either. But why these three? Well, if you've got your hand there that marked in Luke 4, go with me over to 1 John, and we're going to look at chapter 2 and verse 16. 1 John chapter 2. And verse 16. Here John says this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I believe that these three temptations of Jesus by the devil are the same three temptations described here by John to his readers. And I think that we can see that also when we remember what was spoken of in the Genesis account with the fall of man. When you compare these passages in Genesis 3 and verse 6, it says how the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was able to make one wise. Each of those three things, in summary, are seen the same as 1 John chapter 2 and exactly in the order we see here in Luke's gospel. So let's talk about the first one. Okay, so Satan comes to Jesus. He, notice the temptation comes after his fasting has ended. So he spent, it's not like he was tempted on the second and third and fourth and fifth day for the food. Satan waits until their weakest point. Now there's a, there's a sermon in there if you're paying attention because Satan will hit you when you're down. He, he will find a way to weaken you. And then you ever felt like that sometimes whenever it just seems like it just can't get any better? You you, you say it can't get much worse, and then it gets worse. So Jesus is fasted. He's exhausted, as you and I would be. We would be tired after that long. You know, my stomach starts making this noise. Does y'all do that? You have this little monster inside that just... uh, If I go a day, I don't know that I've gone more than one day, but two days, three days... The stomach, the stomach starts telling you, you know. You know what else happens to your body when you stop eating is it affects your, your, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your mind when your stomach is churning and you're hungry. And so Satan hits him at this weak point and he says, I want you to command these stones to become bread. Now that's a loaded, a loaded challenge because one is he knows Jesus has the power to do it. The second is, everything that Jesus says is true. And if he would command, he could prove to Satan, not that Satan needs it, he's just doing it to test him, 
he can prove right here to the devil that he is the Son of God. He's like, look, if you're, if you're the one, I just want you to take this stone and make bread. Give yourself something to eat. I do find this funny. Uh, there are certain, our culture misunderstands Bible verses all the time. In fact, uh, oftentimes people will abuse Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, they will abuse all kinds of passages of Scripture, but one that really, in pop culture, uh, if you were to say, what is the uh, most commonly referred to song that was put out by a group of artists that was well-known and well-loved and has been for generations, it would be, We Are the World. Do you remember that when they raised money for Africa? Well, there's a verse in there that Willie Nelson sings, and he says, just as the Lord commanded stones to become bread. And I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, hmm, that's funny. I don't remember Jesus turning the stones to bread. He said he wouldn't turn the stones to bread. But because in that moment they were hurrying through in that night to get the song done, nobody questioned the theology of it. So in that, now you've got, every time you hear the song, you can't unhear it. When he says, as Jesus commanded the stones to become bread. So this verse shows Jesus' power over the lust of the flesh, over his flesh, what he felt he needed in the moment to survive. And this goes back to the garden. Remember, the Lord told them not to eat from the tree. And the text tells us that it was specifically Eve sees, and Adam too, he's there beside her. Remember, she turns to him and he eats the fruit. It doesn't say she went and found Adam. It says she turned to him. They were sitting together. Turned to him. Here he is, and Adam eats the fruit. The tree was good for food. And Satan had convinced her that everything she thought about that tree and about God's uh, purpose in that tree being there was just a little misguided. And so he, he says, oh, you're not going to die. It's not that you'll surely die. You're going to live forever. You're going you're to actually have the wisdom of God. And he uses the words and just kind of supplements a few things. He takes one word out and it makes a big difference. So the lust of the flesh that Jesus overcomes is proof that you and I can, if we will, try to conquer our flesh. There is a passage in Galatians, I know we got a lot of scripture here, but Galatians chapter 5. You remember the fruit of the Spirit? What is the list that comes before the fruit of the Spirit? What is it? The works of the flesh. So the works of the flesh, he says, these are things that you don't want and the fruit of the Spirit, these are the things that you do want. So he, he basically contrasts the things that are of the world and then the things that are supposed to be spiritual. And there is a uh, direct reference to each one of the parts of the fruit of the Spirit to those individual things that are called works of the flesh. As a Christian, we have to determine that what is inside of us is more valuable than what is outside of us. In other words, our soul, I do this with the teenagers all the time. I do it, we can do it at chapel, we do it at, when I'm teaching them. About at least once, once every year or two, I'll have them say, close your eyes. And they'll close their eyes, say, close them real tight. And I, what do you see? Nothing. It's black. You know, it's dark. No, you do see something. When you close your eyes and you look into, this is stillness now. It's one of the reasons why the, a lot of the uh, prophets meditated. When you look within yourself and you close your eyes, that's the only thing you're taking to heaven. That's the only thing. You're not taking this flesh. You're not taking anything on your body. The only thing that you're taking with you into eternity is when you close your eyes, your soul. It's there. And so Jesus conquers the flesh 
by recognizing the power of the Spirit. And one of the things that happens right after this is it's almost like, you know, when your phone battery gets down to like 10% and you start panicking. Um, I don't usually panic. Usually Misty will call me and say, hey, it says you have 10% on your battery. I say, well, what's 10%, you know? But um, if your battery gets low, you go plug it in. So what happens after Jesus is tempted is the angels come and minister to him, and the very next verse says, in the spirit he, so Jesus gets right back out doing ministry. But he had to conquer the flesh, and he had to tell Satan, you're not going to tempt me to take care of my flesh because there was something more valuable to him, and that was the spirit. So a couple of thoughts on that. One is children of the world want to have their lusts fulfilled. There is no limit to what you can do. Our culture says, if you want something, go get it. If you desire sex, you don't have to wait till you're married. If you desire to get drunk, drink alcohol. If you desire to step on everybody you can to get to the top, great. If you have to cheat people to get money, that's fine. They probably were too weak to get cheated out of it anyway. And so our culture constantly stresses it's what you have, it's what you collect, it's what you maintain. You have to have a certain look about you and a certain way about you that if you don't keep up with those norms and standards, then you're, you're not going to be able to keep up with anybody in the world. So we have this standard that's set, and it's obviously, it's worldly, and people will say, I just want what I want. I want my way. You know, we have a, we have a, a contrast between the world and then those of the church. And the Bible calls us peculiar, and that's a reason. There's a reason behind that. We're supposed to be different. We don't go after the lust of the flesh. Those things that, that Paul talks about in Galatians 5 are things we avoid. And there are a few times that Paul will say, say things like to Timothy, flee from this. You know, in other words, run in the opposite direction from it. And so as children of the Lord, we want to fulfill his desires. And the desire of God is not to pursue things that benefit our flesh, but things that benefit our spirit. And, and I have to figure out, if I'm going to close my eyes and look at the only thing I'm taking with me into eternity, what can I do to nourish that spirit? All right? How many of you spent, um, we're going to tell on ourselves, how many of you spent 30 minutes to an hour today doing hair, makeup, clothing, etc.? A few? Yeah? Mm-hmm. All right. Every day, yeah, every day we spend, you know, shower, brush your teeth, y'all with me? You know, do the hair, clean the glasses, put them on, put the contacts in the eyes, get the shoes, put on the outfit, change the outfit, change the outfit again, uh, go, to the, go to the kitchen, make breakfast, we probably had lunch today. We had a great lunch today down at Cracker Barrel. You may have had dinner tonight. You have spent hours today nourishing your flesh. What have you done to nourish your spirit? Jesus is saying to the devil, the spirit is willing. His spirit was willing to overcome what the flesh has to say. And sometimes our, the trials we face, the hardest part about it is not saying no it's knowing that if we said yes, the pain could end. You know, if, I, if I'm trying to, and this is one big thing, you know, from the Old Testament, they fasted a lot, and it was a reminder to them that they didn't need food to survive. So Jesus combats it with Scripture, right? What does he say? What does he say? Go back to the text in Luke chapter 4. 
So when he's, he's challenged with eating the bread, or at least commanding the stone to become bread, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of the mouth of God. In John chapter 4, Jesus is meeting the woman at the well. Remember the story? You know, she's they're having a nice little conversation. Jesus teaches her some things about worship. He talks about her background and her lifestyle. So much so that she runs to town and tells people, this guy knows everything about me. I'm an open book to him. But when his disciples left, they were given a command to go get food in town. So they left him. Jesus is standing by the well alone when he meets this woman. They come back from town. And this is another little little story that often gets overlooked because we're focused on the woman and what she's doing. But they come back from town and they've got the food that Jesus sent them to go for. And they try to give him some. And he says, no. Don't eat it. And they begin to ask, did you give Jesus food? Did you give Jesus food? Who gave Jesus food? And his, his statement about what he'd been doing with the woman is he's saying that food was provided from a spiritual source. Maybe you've had those nights where maybe you had a friend that you talked on the phone or maybe you've sat down with somebody. This happens to us all the time. You, know, you may have somebody over at the house or you're over at somebody else's house and you get to talking and you go, oh my goodness, it is 10 o'clock. It is, it is 11 o'clock. When I was younger, it was, oh, it's 2 in the morning. I don't pull those anymore. But as we have that moment, we have, we've, our spirit has been nourished so much, we forget. I rarely forget to eat, but it does happen that I get really excited about something and I forget to eat something because I'm just so caught up in it. And Jesus is showing us that if we nourish our spirit, then the flesh is overcome. And you won't have to have, I'm not saying that if we prayed more, we wouldn't have to eat more, but I'm saying that by Jesus's example, we live by the word of God. We live by spiritual food and that nourishment. Remember Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for banana pudding, right? And lemonade. No, what does it say? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst for the things of God. And if we do, we conquer the flesh. What thoughts do you have about that before we move to the second one? Anybody got anything you want to add? Okay, let's look at the next one. So the second one, after he deals with the lust of the flesh, is the lust of the eyes. Now remember back in the garden, the tree was pleasant to the eyes. This is the reason why John says what he says in 1 John. It's a teaching of the rabbis that there were those three great, all sins could be basically categorized in these three different things. So lust of the eyes, it was good for the eyes. And so what, what it says in Luke is he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. So, uh, and again, I, I look at this and say, how tall was that mountain? Which mountain is it? Is it, and there's a lot of questions as to what mountain that might be. I, I'm assuming it's not Sinai because the next stop is at the temple. So it doesn't seem that he's there. But he takes him to this top mountain and he looks out and he says, you can have everything you want. You can have, I, I, and, and then he makes, a, he makes a statement that bothers me. Okay, notice again, um, verse six. The devil said, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give to whomever I wish. Does Satan really have all authority and power over the earth? Well, God, of course, is in control. But Jesus uses phrases like prince of the air, 
prince of this world. It seems that, that, that Jesus recognizes that he did have some authority. But he's not in control of everything. But he makes this promise, basically, if you will just worship me, it's all yours. You, we don't have to do this anymore. You can go about your life however you want. I just want you to take a knee and bow down to me. And, of course, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, you worship the Lord your God only, which go back to the Ten Commandments. We can go back to the teachings of the Shema. We can talk about something he's already talked about many times, about his relationship with the Lord and about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But in this temptation, looking at the kingdoms, Jesus came to die for the whole world, right? I want you to think about the temptation of Satan. I will give you authority, and you can go into the kingdoms of the world. You say, well, that wasn't a really good temptation to Jesus. I mean, the worshiping part would have been bad, but what, why does he use that temptation? Well, Satan knew what Jesus' ultimate plan was. And we know that because these same words, very similar words, are what Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 through 20. When he tells his disciples to go into all the world, put it together with Mark 16, 15, and 16. He tells them you need to go out and get, conquer these kingdoms. And you do that because he says all authority has been given to me. Not because he worshiped Satan, but because he fulfilled the will of God by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And so what Satan said he would give him, Jesus was going to accomplish anyway. He just had to be patient. And you know, some of us, we're, we're impatient. We want something and we want it now. If we look at it, you know, I remember my mom and dad take us to, to Walmart back in the day, and we would look at toys. I told you my grandma had a Sears catalog. We circled whatever we wanted for her. But we had this painful practice of layaway. Did y'all ever have layaway? You go to the store, you want that? Oh, yeah, you can have that win in 60 days, you know, in 30 days. And I thought layaway was a punishment, you know, because they're setting it aside. But we're impatient. Sometimes we want things right now. Jesus could have possibly been given whatever authority the devil thought he had, but Jesus is going to accomplish anyway, and he's going to accomplish it by his death on the cross. And he uses the same words that Satan said, only he said, I've received it the right way. There is a wrong way to do the right thing. And sometimes in order to accomplish good, we say, well, the end justifies the means. And that's not true. Jesus proves himself that your eyes can deceive you. How many of you have ever ordered something online and it gets to the house you know, it's almost like the box opens and it goes, wah, wah, wah. You know, it's, man, I love Timu, you know. I've done the Timu orders, been disappointed a little bit, you know. I don't know what I was thinking, you know, buying something that's normally 20 bucks and getting it for 37 cents and no shipping shipped to me from China. And I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be glamorous. It's going to be wonderful. And it just, it, it, they don't all fall apart. I do still like some of the stuff that we order. We don't order that much. But if you get something that you, you expected something, and you get it, you receive it, and you're just, oh, it's not what I wanted. And so our eyes can deceive us. Something we think we want in the moment may not be good for us in the long run. And so Jesus recognizes that the lust of the eyes can be defeated if he does the same thing he did with the first temptation, and that is rely on Scripture. And so his spiritual eyes are opened, not his physical eyes. He doesn't need to see the kingdoms. He already knows what he's going to accomplish. And he already knows that he's going to die and be raised from the dead. He has determined in his mind 
He'll get it when the time comes. And we need to be careful that we don't try to take things, first of all, that are not ours or that we don't deserve. And church, that's something this culture does not understand. There are some people that absolutely believe that they are entitled to something that they haven't worked for, they haven't earned, and they feel like immediately they should have it, and they should have it right now. And we have to, as Christians, rise above that in culture and say, well, you can't do that. You haven't worked for it. You haven't earned it. You haven't tried hard to do it. Most of us probably were raised in households where our parents made us do chores, Remember that? Did, you, did anybody have parents like that? Had all these chores you had to do? And, and for some reason, we have a culture of, of young people that have never had to do anything other than keep their room clean. Uh, and we, we, we need to teach our children that reward only comes when there is work that's been put into it. If you want something, you have to work towards it. If you, if you want to have a nice car, absolutely you should have a nice car, but you have to work for it. Uh, my, my parents, it was rough. I thought it was torture because when I wanted a car, I had to buy the car. I wanted insurance to drive it. I had to pay for it. Gas in the tank, I had to get a job to pay for the gas. My parents didn't pay that for me. And I could have been upset with them and said, why didn't you, you know, remind me to ask dad. I'm sure he'll, I know exactly what he's going to say. You learned and you grew physically and spiritually into a role. And you have to learn as an adult to take care of yourself. You have to learn how to pay your own bills. And so it helped me. If I wanted something, I had to work for it. And that's something that our, our culture now needs to also learn. We need a generation of workers. You know, we need people that are willing to, you know, I, I'm not satisfied when the McDonald's shake machine's broken. It's always broken. Why can't somebody fix it? You don't have somebody to fix it. Um, you ever go to a line? We were today, oh, where were we? We were at, um, oh, where were we? Oh, Cracker, no, it was a Cracker Barrel. We were somewhere today, and they had the, oh, it was Office Depot, and they had two registers, and one of them said register broken. And so there's all these people lined up. Finally, one of the managers came over, and she goes, I'll take you over to the copy station, because they had two other registers over there, but all of us are standing here waiting in this line, and sometimes things break. That's just part of it, but not being willing to work for something. Jesus is giving a great example here, that if it's worth waiting for, then you wait for it. And uh, Paul, of course, says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat either. So we have to put in the time. We have to be patient. So children of the world want everything they see. Anything that they want, they should be able to have it. And you should give it to them, and you shouldn't complain. But for us as Christians, if we're children of God, then we have to look at the good of something. We have to look into uh, God's eyes. What does God want from me? What does he desire from me? And sometimes the things that God wants from me are so simple, and I make them so complex. God wants you to have peace of mind. You know, God does, I don't know that, that God expects all of us to have nice, big, fancy houses and vehicles and, and, and all these degrees and things like that. God wants us to have peace of mind. He wants us to have salvation. He wants us to have a, a renewed purpose in life. He wants us to have an appreciation and knowledge of his word. He wants us to have a, a sense of, of passion for worship. He wants us to have a love for lost souls. Those are the things that are on God's wish list. If you're going to make a list of 10 things you want and then ask the 10 things that God would want, those lists would vary probably greatly. And so what Jesus is teaching us is if we really want to succeed in life, if you want to call it succeeding, you have to get in line with the priorities of God. And so he's saying what he'll say over and over uh, in several other places. We studied it today in John, in John 12, where he says, not my will, but yours be done. 
And that's the attitude as Christians we have to have. If we don't have it, there's probably a reason why that we don't have it. There's a reason why we're not multimillionaires, because God knows how we'd spend that money, you know? So we work for what we have. And sometimes we expect people to just give us things, but again, Jesus sees that there's no value in that. You have to earn it. Jesus had to earn it on the cross, and he had to die in order to achieve it. Uh, this would be something that would be temporary, be fleeting, and it certainly wouldn't be what God's desire was for him. So what are your thoughts about the second temptation? And he uses scripture again, second temptation. The devil knows the Bible too. Uh, I think the devil comes to church. I think he knows where we are. I think his work is not out there in the brothels and the bars. I think his work there is accomplished. I think he's focusing his energy on the saints. And so uh, he knows the Bible he knows scripture backward and forward, so much so that he's able to deceive. And this is one thing that bothers me too, as you begin to look into Paul's letters, is that there are people who lead people of God, or people who claim to be children of God, and they teach things that are so false. And sometimes it's, the, it's misapplication, and sometimes it's just directly a contradiction of scripture. But sometimes we have a tendency to always believe what we're told and I appreciate that as a preacher, I do. I appreciate the fact that you're attentive and that you, you, you give me feedback and you listen and you just soak it up. I love that. But as students of the Word of God, as, as children of the Lord, we have to be cautious and we have to be careful in what is being taught and preached from the pulpit, television, wherever we may be. So there has to be this uh, sense that I know that I have respect for the person that's speaking but I also have to be like the Bereans were with Paul and search the scriptures to see if it's true. And that's, there's, there's nothing, uh, in fact, if you, if you bring the Bible to somebody in an argument and you sit down with someone and you have an open Bible and you say, well, you said this, but the Bible says this, and they push it away and they say they don't want to hear it, well, that to tells you about their spirit. Their spirit is of the world. In Christ, we have to be held accountable. The Bible says if we have a problem with a brother, we go to our brother. If somebody is overtaken in a trespass, we go. Love covers a multitude of sins. So we cannot just immediately, when something happens, just go, well, you know, it's not going not to get worked out. Nothing's going to happen here. We have to have conversations. Yes. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Missy and I spent about an hour talking about this tonight because I wasn't sure whether or not we wanted to tackle that or not. It, do you want to tackle that, why the, they're different? Okay, so Matthew's gospel has the last two temptations flipped. It says that he took him to the temple, and then he took him to the mountain. Luke says they went to the mountain and then to the temple. And this is one of several passages of Scripture that our, our friends that are non-religious will say, well, that's a contradiction in the Bible. It's a direct contradiction, because Matthew says that it was in this order, and Luke says that it was in this order. So why are they different? Well, my thoughts are, it really depends upon the author of the book. Luke is writing to Gentiles. So he's going to show that emphasis over all the kingdoms of the world is maybe first, and then the temple with Judaism is last. Matthew brings the temple into it first, and then all the mountains. So it's like he starts off with him, and then with Israel, and then with the whole world. So Luke's is a little different. Now, I will tell you this. Luke offers us a perspective from a Gentile point of view in more places than that. And in fact, there's another one, which uh, very interesting. Luke says, 
whenever they took communion, he passed the cup first, not the bread. Passed the cup. So we, on Sunday mornings, we do the bread first and the cup second. But Luke says, specifically, Jesus took the cup, blessed it, and passed it. And then he prayed for the bread and then for the juice. Why are they flipped? Why is it that Luke emphasizes the cup first? Well, it's simple. To a Jew, Passover was about one thing. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The emphasis on a Jew who's reading Matthew is that it is about the bread and the Feast of the Bread. Wine second. To a Gentile, they were drunkards. Their preference was the wine at the table, not the bread. So Luke talks about the cup first. All it shows us is, if you and I tell stories, uh, let's say that we witness an accident. It's a great example. And we're witnesses to that accident, and we stand there, and they say, well, sir, what did you see? Well, I saw him on his cell phone, you know. I saw him on his cell phone. He wasn't paying attention. And the other person says, well, he was actually looking up, and he saw the light was turning red, and he gunned it. So we have two issues there. One is he saw the light. He was on his phone. There's two distracting things, but both are part of the whole story to put it all together. Somebody else might say, well, you know, he ran two lights before he got here, and he was just blowing through lights. Well, that shows a different motive. For some reason, he thinks he's above the law. Maybe he has an emergency. But the more witnesses that are present at something, the better you get the entire picture. So it doesn't show in any way that the Bible is contradictory. It just shows that the authors focus on one story first. The same thing's true in John. Remember in the, in the temple, when Jesus goes in to teach, he cleanses the temple, you know, right before he goes in and teaches that passage week. Well, Luke 1, right after Jesus' baptism, he cleanses the temple. Does that mean that Jesus cleansed the temple then, or did he cleanse it later, or did he cleanse it both times? The authors are only telling us from their perspective. And so it did happen. It happened in one of those two orders. But all we know is that each author has put their individual fingerprints on it. And sometimes the stories, John's a great example. He doesn't tell stories in order. If you look at the other Gospels, there are certain events, and John tells it differently. Because John basically walks us in with a box of pictures. He's an old man telling stories about life. In fact, John can't even end the book. You know, he, he well, this is, if you write down everything that the Lord had ever said, the world couldn't contain the scrolls. Thank you, John. Fold up the book. We're done. John goes, oh, wait a minute. There was this one time we went fishing. And, oh, okay, here we go. And then John 21, Jesus has already ascended in heaven. I mean, <laughs> how did he get back to go fishing? So the story John tells is out of order because his intention was to teach you topics, not themes. Matthew and Luke are telling it. Luke's talking about a Gentile perspective. Matthew's talking about a Jewish perspective. That's why Matthew gives all these prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. So it really just determines, if I tell a story, you would have probably taught this differently tonight. You probably would have started in Genesis 3 and then read Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and then 1 John 2. So it's just about the presenter of the facts. They're still facts. They all happened. It really doesn't matter in what order um, we could be technical and say, well, I want, you can get to heaven and ask Matthew. You know? Neither one of them were there anyway, right? Jesus is alone in the wilderness. So, some people prefer to learn like that. In fact, there's movies that they'll put out, uh, TV shows. I mean, uh, there's some, uh, I think This Is Us is an example. 
One day you're in 1970 and one year in 2010. You never know where you are. And some movies are made that way, where you're, you're given just enough of the storyline and then they back up and tell another one and they come back and forth. In fact, those are frustrating to me <laughs> because I, I'm a simple creature and, uh, and I'll be like, well, didn't, isn't he dead? Oh, no, he's not. Well, he was dead. Oh, oh, this is still in the past. So sometimes the stories are told from a narrative point where he's trying to make a uh, a, a topical conversation of certain things. It doesn't have to be chronological. And there are other places, even in the Old Testament, where, like you said, it'll be Jeremiah talking, and then all of a sudden in our Bible there's quotes, and it's the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. And so it's, we just have to look at that and say, the man who wrote the book was writing it with this intended purpose. And we're seeing it right now in, in the Old Testament, because Exodus will say, Moses said, but it's really the Lord saying through Moses. Um, and in our New Testament, Jesus does that frequently. He'll start quoting scripture while he's talking. He doesn't stop and say, oh, by the way, that's in Psalm 91. Um, that's, some, that's some really good thoughts. Chase a little rabbit, but I'm glad you brought it up. I was not sure anybody really would want to look at that. But I'm telling you, if you ever have somebody tell you that those are contradictions, now you can have a discussion on it and say it's not a contradiction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you ever have two kids that get into trouble, go talk to one. And then you go talk to the other, <laughs> and you'll hear the stories from different perspectives. And if they tell the exact same story with the exact same details, uh, it was decided before you got into that room. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's rehearsed. It's rehearsed. So the last one probably is, uh, to me, probably the most difficult that we still face today, and that is the pride of life. The idea that um, we have something owed to us, and we deserve it. Jesus deserved to be taken care of. And what Satan does is he, he uses Psalm 91, and uh, this is a very powerful passage that shows that the saints, not, in, not just Jesus, but the saints of God will be protected. And so the Psalm says that if, if uh, he were to ever be in a position where he could have harm, that he would be protected. His foot wouldn't even catch a stone that Jesus could be able to walk freely and not have to worry about being overthrown or tackled or tempted or whatever. And so he says, we both know why you're here, so why don't you just jump off this pinnacle and prove it? Now, after all this time, if you've ever gone through a trial before, there comes a point where you just, you're just ready to get it over with. You know, I just want it to be done. I'm, just, I'm done with it. I'm so done with it. When really, you may be this close to resolution, Jesus does not allow that frustration. Remember hunger, exhaustion, you know, constantly Satan's nagging. And he pushes through this last one. And he says, throw yourself down. Throw yourself off the temple. I will tell you this. There was a high part in the temple, pinnacle of the temple, where he was taken. That was, was a point of reference throughout, the, from the, even back in Nehemiah's day. And then building it up with the Herod's temple at the time of Jesus this is the same spot at the pinnacle of the temple where James, Jesus' brother, was taken and thrown down. Now, James didn't die. He hit the ground and then they killed him, but he was obviously badly bruised and beaten. But that's where James was taken. So Jesus knows all things. Satan takes him to the spot where his brother's going to die in a few years. Stand here. If you jump off, we can stop all this now. This wasn't just a temptation about 
uh, you know, Jesus's willingness to follow God's plan. It's not just a temptation about his, his flesh or his eyes. This is about what's most important, what's most valuable to you, to me. Uh, if we could save somebody's life, would we do it? You know, James is going to die for his faith. When Jesus resurrects, 1 Corinthians 15 said, Jesus goes to James, to many of the apostles, but he goes to his brother James, who would later be an elder of the church in Jerusalem, very educated man, a man who wrote places in our New Testament, not just his book, but he pens the letter that's included in the book of Acts. So Jesus literally stands in the location where his brother is going to fall. And he says, why don't you fall, Jesus? Why don't you fall? Because we know that the angels will protect you. The angels aren't going to protect James. The angels aren't going to protect the other apostles. Satan's going to kill every single one of them. He's going to have them, all of them, martyred except for John. And John was tortured before that. And so he says, just, just, just remember the scriptures, Jesus. Just remember that if you jump off here, the angels are just going to lift you up. Strangely enough, the Bible also tells us that at Jesus' death, he could have called 10,000 angels. That even at the last minute, when he could have received salvation, if you will, from the, from the penalty of death, if he could receive it, he would have received it. Now, the angels come and minister to him after the fact here, but he says, you know right now, if you just throw yourself off, you're not going to die. You're protected. You're the anointed one. So the pride that he has to overcome, maybe one of the most difficult things for us to overcome is our own pride. We, have, we struggle with humility. You know, we're, we're, bu- we're born with buckets of self-esteem. You know, I can walk back here into this classroom and say, hey, who's the fastest man alive? One of the kids probably go, me. You know, I could fly like Superman. Don't try it. You know, I can, I can, they think they got all power, you know, and they don't. They don't have that. And Jesus is basically showing even though he can he doesn't. You and I can do whatever we want to do, but just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. That there may be a consequence that we haven't considered. Jesus is having to contemplate what will happen if I do this. And so he quotes scripture and he basically tells the devil, absolutely not. You know, I know that's what you say the Bible says, but I want you to know you can't tempt me anymore. This is the last time. Jesus uses the phrase, get behind me, Satan, several times in scripture. He does it a couple times to Peter because he feels like Satan's sifting him like wheat. So there are moments where when we are so overcome with a trial or a temptation, uh, the power Satan has is limited. It is, it is finite. It, it, it is not infinite. And so when Satan is on our back, we say, get behind me, Satan. You know, I, I'm not, the devil's not going to win here. The devil is not going to win. I'm not going to let the devil win. Not, not today. Um, Jesus sets this precedent that what is in you, the power that is in you, as John will say, is greater than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit that God has given us as a seal of our salvation will give us the strength and courage to overcome just like Jesus did. We won't have to fear if he is with us. I mean, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, there's a, we're more than conquerors. He uses that phrase. And so we have to have confidence that if we're doing God's will, he's going to take care of it. And if it means death, it means death. And if it means long life and long service, so be it. But Jesus is willing to accept it in his own time. That if he did this, he would be glorified, but the Father would not be. 
because it would be about him, about what he's accomplishing. How many times does it say they worshiped him uh, in, in the name of the Father or for the Father, on behalf of the Father? They wanted to know God, the Father, enough. They saw him through the Son. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he's giving glory to God. Same thing with good works. Remember Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not about us getting petted, and, and boy, we, we like to be praised. We do. We like to be praised when we do something. We don't like other people taking credit for things that we've done, and, and so Jesus shows us that ultimately is not about him. It's not about you. It's about the Father's will. Jesus is elevated after his resurrection, after his ascension to the right hand of God, but while he's on earth, he's in a mission. Uh, we have a great heavenly reward waiting for us, but until we get there, we got work to do. And it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about doing things in the will of God and, and surrendering to his will. So children of the world want to be something and do something, we just want to be servants. I love Jesus' thoughts to his disciples, they were always arguing back and forth who was the greatest, and he basically says to them, on your best day, you're still an unprofitable servant, <laughs> On your best day, you're still not where you need to be. There's always room for growth. There's always room for improvement. And so we, we need to strive for that. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. Be sure to like and follow and subscribe to our social media pages. You can find channels and links on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok pages. Check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. Also, if you'd like to contribute to the show, if you want to send some prayer requests or suggestions about upcoming content, please email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Hope you have a wonderful day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.